Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42, and, and make sure you have some notes in front of you. The notes should be back in the um, back with the bulletins. Job chapter 42, and I'm going to read verses 10 through 12, just to kind of place us, and then we'll jump in together. This is the word of the Lord. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. Let's pray. Father, today concludes just a really long period. We've, We've sat down to consider a man who had everything taken from him. He had everything removed from him. And Lord, as we've sat in ashes the last several weeks, the last several months of looking at Job, I pray, Lord, our hearts would be stirred as we see this last chapter. Because, Lord, this is the end of the book. And Lord, we help us to see you more clearly. God, give us the grace to behold you, Lord Jesus, that we would see not just Job's end, but Lord, we would behold and remember the end that you have set forth for us. Lord, help us to do that right now. Lord, we cannot cannot do this on our own. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you come and you would enlighten our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things from your word. Give God, I pray, just special unction upon my lips. We ask this now, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we'll be finishing uh, the book of Job, and I've entitled today, um, Job's Restoration and Ours. Job's Restoration and Ours. Now, I've, I've mentioned this many times, and I'm going to mention it one more time right here. But we need to remember the, the U-shape pattern of the book of Job. And if you have that pattern there. So we've seen the character of Job. We've seen his circumstances, his tests, the pro, what's called the prologue. And then we've spent a long time down here in the pits of suffering. But this week, and I'm, I'm just excited to just close this chapter, we're going to see the epilogue, the, the vindication, the intercession, and the restoration of Job. And I think it's a very interesting, um, I've been reading through this book called A Crazy Love. Maybe some of you have heard of it. Uh, Drew and I are reading through it. And uh, he had a, Francis Chan, he gives a really good example. And I thought it really struck me as I, was, as I was reading it and thinking about it. It really gave me a good 
illustration as we consider closing out the book of Job. He said that oftentimes, if you think about life like a movie, he says often we picture ourselves as the main character. We picture ourselves, if you think about life as a movie, we think we're the main character, and we think everything in life revolves around us. I think we would all agree with that at some level. And we believe that we're the main character. The problem with that is that God is actually the main character. And what we see in the book of Job is just that that God is the one from beginning to end who was the main character, and Job, uh, he was just a side character. That bothers us, and it should bother us at some level, because I think it, what, it, what it rakes against is this arrogance that we begin to keep, and Job really kind of cuts that loose. When we think of ourselves as the lead character, we have a lopsided view of Scripture, and ultimately we'll have a lopsided view of God. And I want you to see that as you think about that, as you think about life as a movie, and as you think about God as the main character, I want you to consider your role in that movie. Where are you at in that movie? I love Francis Chan in the book. He talks about, he talks about like people who are sides in movies, and you'll be like, the camera will pan past a person, and you see like the back of their head, and we're like, hey, look, I was in a movie. There's the back of my head. It's like... That's actually us, that's a lot closer to what the sto- our story should be. But I want us to see, as we, as we behold and as we see God's movie and his, his story done, we see something really beautiful for our place in the story. So I want to make sure we understand what that is today. So if you're taking notes, uh, I want you to see one thing, and it's simply this, is that Job's reversal reveals a blameless sufferer's vindication or his, his, his um, declaring him right in that way, or his, um, not declaring him right, I'm sorry. We'll, we'll get into the word vindication. Job's reversal reveals a blameless sufferer's vindication, which shadows, foreshadows the ultimate sufferer's vindication, which is our own. Which is our own. So, now I'm going to look real quick, we're going to cover all of chapter 42 today, um, and I, I know we covered the first six verses last week, but I want to relook at them this week. Uh, and I want you to see this first section as being repentance. Now, I remember, remember what God has told Job, so repentance, looking up at God. Now, remember what we saw in chapter thir- 41, where, where God basically, he gives forward Leviathan, and he gives forward Behemoth. And basically tells Job, look at these creatures. I'm going to come and I'm going to slay these evil chaos creatures. And Job's only response is one of repentance. He realizes that he spoke wrongly of God in this way. So look, notice down in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 40, 42. It says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know now, or I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And notice what Job does here. He acknowledges there's nothing you can do. If you're going to destroy evil and you're going to destroy death and you're going to destroy Satan, there's nothing you can't do. He thought he understood God, but he realizes now he did not. Notice what he goes down to say in verse 3. He says, who is, now he quote, this is Job quoting what God said earlier. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He says, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And he'll say in verse 4 and 5, 
quoting God again. He says, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. And he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. So Job acknowledges, listen, God, I thought I knew what you were like. I had heard of you from from the friends. I've heard of you from traditions. I've heard of you from the world around you, around him. But now, he says, now I see you. It's almost as if God has come to Job and knocked him flat on his back and is standing over him. And Job now says, now I can see you. It's like he had a had a had a one of those weird mirrors that like distorts a person in front of him, and when God knocks him back, the mirror is removed, and he starts to realize, "Oh my, I thought I knew what you were like." So this this first piece is taken up from hearing to seeing. He's taken up. Job is experiencing an entirely different understanding of who God is. Now, I want to be very careful as we consider Job's response of repentance here at the end, because it'd be very easy for us to read, because we, we know the whole book, right? We know how it ends. God gives him back twice what he had before, okay? We need to remember that. Job didn't have that picture. Job didn't know his life in his entirety. He didn't know that if he repented, God would do what he did. And oftentimes, actually many, many, many prosperity teachers, what they would do at this point is they would say, look, see, you should repent so that God will restore you. Do, do you see the, the wickedness of that? We can't, that's literally what actually Satan had charged Job would do, that he would repent so that he could get goodies from God's hand. And this is not at all what's happening here. We need to remember that, that Job, at this moment, at this moment that he says, I had heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, at that moment, he's still sitting in dust and ashes. He's, he doesn't have anything restored to him in that moment. And that, so we see the taken up piece. We also see the humility piece of repenting in dust and ashes. Notice what he says in verse 6. He says, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, I want to be clear. Job is not repenting of the sin that caused the suffering, but in his suffering, he has sinned. And now he's, he's realized, I was wrong. I should not have done that. Now, I want, to note, I want you to notice something, too. If you stopped at verse 6, you would have a man who's sitting in his boils, who's sitting in his dust and ashes and has nothing to his name. If we just stopped right there, Job says, I'm satisfied. I'm okay. I'm okay sitting in dust and ashes with nothing because you, I see you more clearly. He's not satisfied because of material blessings at this point. He's not satisfied because his family returned. He's not satisfied because God gives him goodies. He's satisfied because God has revealed himself. He's satisfied because God has revealed his character more clearly. I love what Eric Ortland said about this. He said, this means that without anything in his life improving, Job now says he is comforted over the same suffering that drove him to such a desperate extremes before. That is very important to admit. And and I will say many, many, many people read Job and they say, well, look, he repented so that he could get goodies. 
No, 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 no. We can't do that. We need to see that at verse 6, if you stopped at verse 6, that, that nothing, nothing in his life had changed at that point other than a renewed vision of who God is. And it's at this point that we remember what the New Testament says of Job. We remember what James, James, 5, 10, James 5, 10 through 11, as we read this morning. The only change that had happened to Job, I want to be clear before we read this text, is that it was in reference to his relationship with God. But notice what James 5, 10 through 11 says. It says this. It says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets, who I would argue Job is one of them, who spoke in the name of the Lord. They said, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And then he, then he gives the example. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I want you to see here this first point is that Job's exemplary perseverance reveals to us our greatest need. Let me say it one more time. Job's exemplary, his example of perseverance reveals our greatest need. If you think about Job as anything, maybe here's here's a character picture of like the life of Job. He's a guy who had everything, he gets knocked down to nothing. It's like a guy in the middle of a tornado who's hanging onto a pole and he's being ripped around by the tornado. But he shows, even in his being ripped around, what he's clinging to. He's showing what I'm holding on to and I'm not going to let go. Even if I speak incorrectly, I'm not going to let go of the pole. And Job's, Job's exemplary perseverance reveals to us our greatest need. And our greatest need is to see God for who he is. Job knew that. That's why he continually said, God, come and show me. Come and bring justice to me. His greatest need, as 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6 says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Job knew the same thing Jacob knew as he wrestled with God. I'm not going to let go of you. I need this light to penetrate my eyes. So that's what we see, Job's exemplary perseverance. But I want you to notice, too, he doesn't stop there, though. Notice, notice though, what God does to these friends. Now, you've got to remember what just happened. From chapter 3 to about chapter 35, we saw friends just berate Job, just berate him. And it should make you wonder, like, what's God going to do about this? Is he going to do anything to these friends? Notice what God does to them. And I want you to see this next section is rebuke, that God corrects the friends. You know, I often sit and wonder when I see a slithery prosperity preacher, like, what's God going to do about this? Maybe that, maybe that thought crosses your mind. Or maybe you see a real shyster. I don't know if you've ever seen like someone, a snake oil salesman as they may be called. 
And you know what they're doing. He knows what he's doing. Everyone else knows what he's doing. But there's still people being deceived. And you wonder, like, God, what are you going to do about that? And I think sometimes we'll even be like, ah, it makes us mad because we we don't know, like, are they going to get away with it? And this text shows us they're not going to get away with it. They're not going to get away with it. Listen to what the Lord does to them. Verse 7, it says, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, who would have been the elder, he would have been the oldest one there amongst them, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. I want you to think about that. Every slithery prosperity preacher, every person who has, who's deceived people and knowing, knowingly or deceiving people, you sit and wonder, like, what is God going to do, do toward them? And I want you to hear this line one more time, and I want this to be the thought that comes in your mind every time you see them. My, this is the Lord speaking, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. My anger burns against you. When we see God rebuking these friends, though, we need to be very careful. Here's a caveat, though, for us. Often, like I said in the story, right, we always paint ourselves as the hero unwittingly. We will be like, we always just continue to empathize. Or we, we think we're like Job, right? We'll look and we'll be like, in this story, I'm like Job. Everyone else, all these haters out there in the world, they're the friends. I'm Job. And we need to be very careful because there's wisdom here in what God's telling these friends. And the wisdom is that we, when we speak wrongly of God to others, it's usually in the moments that we're not in church. It's in the moments maybe we're at the hardware store rather than at the church, right? It's in those moments we need to, be, we need to remember what God's friends say. And here's what it would sound like. It would sound like this. You know that divorce is wrong, right? But you're at the hardware store and you hear your friend, oh, you're in a really bad situation. You should just divorce your husband. Just divorce him. Duh. Doesn't matter. Or, I mean, you, and we could just give example after example after example after example of moments that would be tempted for us to lie or to speak falsely of God's character. And it's in those moments that we need, to, we need to hear the shuddering answer that God gives these false friends that says, my anger burns against you. So we, there's a lot of wisdom here that we, we should not just assume these friends that are being rebuked here are not us. We need to be very careful in that way. So not only that, I want you to see, notice what God says, though, of, of not only the two friends, but also of Job. So he, he says about correct speech, and he says, as my servant Job. Notice what he says in verse 7. He says, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, wait a second. Wait a second, you'd say. I, would, I hope you're saying that. How can God say that Job has spoken rightly of him? Now, we just watched God correct Job. We just watched God correct Job and, and tell him, and at the end, Job repents. So how, can, how does it make sense that God can say of Job that he spoke well? Well, I would argue that, that Job reflected, he knew 
that he didn't sin. And that he, he didn't take a position like the friends took. The friends took a p- position that said, you put good in, you get good out. And Job knew, I didn't, I didn't sin in any way, yet I'm suffering. And he knew that that's not how, God, that's not how God's justice works. Not always, at least. And I love what um, Eric Ortland again, he says, he says, apparently, Yahweh would rather have someone struggle and endure in a relationship with him than take refuge in perfect theories that reduce God to more familiar dimensions. I want you to hear that one more time. Apparently, God would rather have someone struggle and endure in a relationship with him than take refuge in perfect theories. Those friends, they took refuge in a theory that if I put good in, I'll get good out. That's what I need to do. I just keep putting good in, I'll keep getting good out. Or if I put bad in, well, then I must get bad out. So if I get bad out, I must have put bad in somewhere. Do you see? that They take refuge in a theory like that. And he's saying that God is taking more comfort, or he's, he, he would rather someone struggle and endure than not. But I want you to notice too, so, so he says in verse 7, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. But I want you to notice too, he doesn't come and just consume them. Like, I think at this moment, like, even as you read Job and you know how it's going to end, you think God, when he shows up, he's just going to come and destroy the friends. He doesn't, though. He comes near to them, and he even tells them, he tells them in verse 7, for you've not spoken right, like, what, is right, what is right, as my servant Job has, but then says, now, therefore, take seven bulls. Now he gives them away. Here's how to be restored. God's not like me and you. He's so much not like me and you. Because it'd be really easy for me in my flesh to see the prosperity preachers or to see the snake oil salesmen and be like, let's just consume them. Let's just blow them off the earth. No. God's not even like that. He comes and he says, he comes near to them. He takes the initiative to them. They didn't take the initiative. Notice this. The friends don't come to God and say, how can we be made right with you, Lord? He comes to them and he says, do this. This is what I want you to do, to be reconciled. Now, notice what he goes on to say. He says in verse 8, Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So I want you to see the offering. The offering. And it's simply, have Job pray for you. It's the offering, and it's simply, have Job pray for you. God warns the friends that he's angry with them, and that they should repent. But I want you to notice the only way he will receive them. He doesn't receive them by saying, if you're sorry enough, then, then that's enough. That's what I need you to do. Nope, that's not what he says. Now, James, as James says, Job is an example for us, but he's also prophetic. J- Job, or I'm sorry, Job points forward to us someone who's beyond himself. He's prophetic because he stands as the mediator between these friends and God. 
This mediatory position that Job stands in is a foretaste of the mediatory role of the Lord Jesus. See, here's the problem. If we think we're not the friends, if we think we're not like the friends, we'll miss a big piece of this book. We'll miss a large piece of this book because we'll think, oh, I'm like Job. I'm just the one suffering unjustly. And I would actually argue the wisdom of this book also comes and addresses us as the ones who counsel wrongly. And it's in this moment, though, we need to remember the the prophetic vision that Job is pointing us forward to, which is the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus, in John 17, Jesus is getting ready to go to the grave. He's getting ready to go to the cross of Calvary. And you'd think he'd be thinking like, man, Lord, how can I get out of this? He'd be thinking like, man, do I have my affairs in order? Well, if you think about all the things we would be thinking of. What do you think he's thinking of? This is amazing to see this. John 17. He, not only is he thinking of the, his disciples on the earth at the time, but he's thinking of those who would believe. Listen to what he says. John 17, 20 through 21. He says, I do not ask for these only. That's those on the earth, his disciples on the earth. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. You wonder what was on Jesus' mind when he went to the cross? And I don't say this with like weird, like just feelings. When we, he was going to the cross, he had on his mind you. He had on his mind the person who would come to believe in him He says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I want you to consider this for a moment, Christian. Before you ever considered coming near to Christ, before you were ever born or thought of, Before you ever made a decision to follow Christ, Christ prayed for you. I want you to think about that for a second. That the same role that Job prophetically points forward to, the Lord Jesus comes and he does. He prophetically comes and he prays for you prior to you even coming to him. I hope you consider that even in the coming days. And wonder, when, you, when you wonder in moments when you're like, man, what are you doing, God? I don't know what you're doing here. To know that the Lord Jesus mediatorily stands bef- between you and God the Father. Now notice what they do. I want you to notice this. This is very important in verse 9. So look down in verse 9. So Eliphaz, the, the older one, Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, went and did as the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Do you notice who he didn't accept? It doesn't say that he said, it doesn't say the Lord accepted their prayer. It says that he accepted Job's prayer. Do you, do you see that? I want you to see that, notice the difference. He doesn't say, oh look, he no, look, the Lord sees Eliphaz, he's sorry, and Bildad, he didn't mean to, he, forgive him, It says the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And we see accepted. It's on Job's behalf. And it's in this moment that we see the prophetic witness of Job. That Job acted as a kind of priest for his own family 
We see that in chapter 1. But now he's acting as a kind of priest for his friends. This pre-covenantal priesthood role reveals, no, it doesn't just reveal, it shouts at us, it declares to us, it beckons us that we need a mediator. Job's prophetic perseverance reveals to us our great provision. Let me say that one more time. Job's prophetic perseverance, he doesn't just reveal our greatest need, he reveals our great provision. He reveals our great provision. The need of humanity is to have one who Job longed for, to have one who comes and can touch God and touch man at the same time. Now, this is what Job's longing was for in Job 9, 33. We see this. He says, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hands on us both. And without being aware Job prophetically points forward to the Lord Jesus, who, as 1 Timothy would say, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Do you know why you can be assured your prayers will be heard? It's not because you prayed hard enough. It's not because you were strong enough and the Lord was like, wow, look at Daniel. He's really, he's, really, he's really hammering out that prayer time. No. It's because we are accepted on the basis of the mediator. God hears our prayers not just because we pray them, but because the Lord Jesus has accepted us in that way. And that should give great, not only comfort to us, but it should give a great assurance in prayer. That there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. So we see Job's exemplary perseverance, and we see his prophetic perseverance, but now I want us to see what we see of God here. And it's this, it's restoration, that God restores Job. Now many would take this, ending section as a warrant for prosperity theology that says, look, Job persevered long enough, then God was merciful, and he gave him everything back. There's many that take a line like that, but I want to show you that that's not what he's doing here. Notice what he says in verse 10. It says, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. Now notice this, when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. I want you to notice the concurrence of this. God doesn't say, I told you to pray for them. You didn't pray for them, but I'm going to give it to you anyways. He says, when he had prayed for them, then the Lord had given him twice as much. And I would argue this is the same thing we see. It's the evidence of faith. It's not the reason for it, okay? So that when he had prayed, when Job had prayed for his friends, it showed that he had truly forgiven them, and it had showed that he had done as the Lord had told him to do. So it's an evidence of the faith in that way. So we see his restoration and that he's restored. It's from dust to glory, Now, he restores him in two distinct ways, okay? He doesn't just restore him in a vacuum, okay? God doesn't just come and like lightning bolt things into our lives. He has means that he restores us. And here's the first one. He restores us through relationships. 
or he restored Job specifically through relationships, and it's comfort and sympathy. Notice then what happens. So the Lord restores him, but he starts in verse 11, it says, then, so, so it says, and the Lord gave, verse 10, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. The people who had abandoned him are now coming around him and caring for him. The people who said, oh, I can't even, I can't even look at this guy. This, like, get this guy out of here. This guy this guy's must be cursed. They're now coming to him. And they're blessing him. They're coming to him. They're showing sympathy and comforting him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. So he does it through relationships. He also does it through finances. And it's twice as much. I want you to notice the back end of verse 11. I think this is really interesting. He not only does it through relationships, he actually uses the relationships as a means to bless. Watch this. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters who had known him before. They ate bread with him in his house and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Do you see? God doesn't drop money out of heaven on him. He uses the friends to come around him. But I have a question. Before we get to this, we need to ask a question that's very, very important. And it's that doesn't God's reversal of Job's situation validate what Satan has said? Now, remember how this book started. Jump back to verse 1. It's actually on the screen. You don't need to. Uh, Job 1, 9 through 11. This is what Satan questioned God. He says, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Now that hasn't happened. What, what, what Satan said did not come to pass. But is it true if God restores Job twice as much as he had before, doesn't it validate what Satan has said? Doesn't it validate what he says? That, that as, soon as, as soon as God touches him, he reaches out and touches him, then he, he gives him all these things back? Doesn't it validate that? And it's important to remember that God was the one protecting Job. But God was also the one who allowed Satan to touch Job in that way. And I, I love what Eric Ortland he went on to say. He said, perhaps we might say that the book of Job relativizes the law of retribution around God himself. So basically, it's not this retribution principle. You put in good coins, you get out something good. You, don't, you get out goodies, okay? He's not saying that. He's saying it, it relativizes it. So basically, he's subordinating, that second sentence, subordinating it to his own prerogative to administer, administer to his creation according to his own will and not according to the mechani- mechanistic principles, thereby, thereby reserving God's right to interpret blessing, interrupt blessing when necessary. And his whole point here is very simple. God is the one who protects but God is also the one who holds the leash of Satan, okay? So he's not the one who, it, it, it's not a contradiction in this way. So, so for, Job to come, for Satan to come and say to God, have you not put a hedge around him? God should respond, of course I have. Duh. 
and I'm also going to be the one who allows you to go touch him. Oh yeah, and by the way, it's my own prerogative. I can bless him if I want to. You know why? Because he's the sovereign Lord. That's why. But doesn't the ending, doesn't this ending of Job affirm the prosperity gospel? Because the prosperity gospel comes and says, hey, come to God. He'll give you lots of goodies. Here it is. And we see with Job, look, he repented, then God gave him lots of goodies. Isn't this the same thing? We need to be careful with this question. Because there are many, 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 many people who believe, they look, they see the end of this, Job, this, this passage in Job, and here's what they'd say. I need to get my goodies. I've suffered a lot. Where are my goodies, Lord? And what that does is that begins to, to rot a person's soul. Because it begins to, to make them say, God, you owe me something. We put God in our debt. He owes us. He doesn't owe us. Job's, Job's reversal reveals to us, as, as James says, the compassion of God. It doesn't reveal that God's in our debt. It reveals that God is a God of compassion. That He looks on His people who are in an unfortunate state with loving kindness. It'd be very tempting for someone who reads the book of Job to walk away and think, maybe Satan was right. Maybe Satan was right. Maybe God wasn't completely correct. Maybe God didn't really care for Job. Or as Job would say, maybe he didn't really care for him. But Job's reversal reveals for us, as we've seen at the top of your page, Job's reversal reveals a blameless sufferer's vindication, which foreshadows the ultimate sufferer's vindication, which is our own. And Job's reversal reveals also to us the compassion of our God. Now, I want us to see this last section here, and it's on, it's renewed. God renewed Job. Not only did he restore him, but he also renewed him. It says in verse 12, that the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. And he does it in two ways. The first is material blessings, and the second one is familial blessings. Now, the material ones are pretty easy to see, um, and I want to be careful here. We, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't think that every time God blesses a person, He's going to immediately bless them financially, okay? But I want you to see also, this is an even more interesting piece. Jump down to verses 13 to 17. So not only does He bless him materially, He also blesses him familially. It's a difficult word. I'll, I'll have it up there in a second. This is verse, verse 13. He says, and he, had also, and he had also seven sons and three daughters. So God gave back to him the same number of children that he lost. And he called the name of the first daughter. Now notice this. He doesn't talk about the sons here. He talks about the daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter, Jemima, and the, second, the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hupak. And in all the land there was no woman, women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. 
I want you to notice the way that Job deals with his daughters. Now, this is something that is significant. It's not significant to us because we live in a world that honors women. We live in a, in a country, in a place that honors women, not in a world. I mean, let me be careful. In our day, it's not strange that women inherit things in our country. But that comes from a Judeo-Christian worldview. When you look at every other, when you look at the way that Muslims treat women, I'm going to be very clear, women don't inherit things in Muslim culture. You know why? Because women are treated as property. But Job, that's not how he's treating these women. You know why? Because he's a righteous man. The way that people treat women reveals how righteous they are in that way. And what, that, what I mean by that is that Job, a righteous man, leaves his daughters an inheritance. Go look at, go look at the, the, in India, the way they treat women. Women, actually in, in China even, when, when women, when a daughter is born, sometimes they will actually abort them just so they can have a son and they can have an inheritance. So, so outside of the Christian worldview, women, women are not viewed in the same way. But for Job to leave his daughters, notice what he says. He not only names them, and that, that's what's brought to the forefront, he also says in verse 15, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. What he's doing there is he's giving them a life insurance policy. That someday if one of their husbands dies, he's going to say, this will take care of you. You will not be poor and destitute as I was. I will give you this life insurance policy. And I think it's really interesting that, that Job sees a righteous man has more daughters and he says, I'm going to make sure that you're well taken care of. I'm going to make sure that the, that, the, that the calamity that came upon me, which I experienced, that's not going to come upon you. Here, I'll put you amongst the, those who are inherited. And the ending of Job reveals, not only does it reveal the, reveal the compassion of God, but it reveals the mercy of God. Now, I've, I've used this. I, we need to keep moving. I'm going way too slow. Um, there should be a chart, chart back there, Tony. I want you to see, as we finish up here, the, the messi- I'm calling this the messianic trajectory of the book of Job. I've, I've referenced this once. I've referenced this a bunch. But I want you to see it again. Job's reversal reveals to us the mercy of God, who, as, as Philippians 2 would say, who though, referring to the Lord Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then it goes back to, um, that, go back to that chart real quick, Tony, sorry. And then it, he, he not only was in a heavenly position, he took on humanity, went to death and suffering, as we see in verse 7 and 8, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What the Lord Jesus shows, or what Job shows us ultimately, is that there's one who's coming. There's one who's coming who who started in an exalted position, who suffered greatly, and who one day will be vindicated, who one day will be defended, as, as Philippians 2, 9 through 10 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Or as, or as 
Isaiah 52, 13 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. The promise for the Christian is Christ has been exalted to the Father's right hand. The hope extended for the Christian is that God will one day raise us to newness of life with him. The promise for the Christian The same messianic trajectory that we see of Job is the same messianic trajectory that can be ours in as much as we're in Christ. Let me be very clear. I do not want to give you a false impression that life is just going to all work out and everything will be happy and daisy at the end. But I want you to see that if you are in Christ today, the promise, the inheritance for you is far greater than even Job's daughters received. Far greater. Job's reversal reveals a blameless sufferer's vindication, which foreshadows the ultimate sufferer's vindication, which is the Lord Jesus, which, brothers and sisters, is our vindication. That is our vindication. Our inheritance for the Christian is what the inheritance which is promised in Christ and it far exceeds any blessing we see here from Job. Now, we're going to take communion, and we're going to turn to a time of taking communion. And as we take communion, what we're doing is we're celebrating Christ's victory. We're celebrating what He has done. We're celebrating His vindication. And as we celebrate His vindication, we're hoping one day for our vindication. We are celebrating and proclaiming Jesus has rose again, and one day we will rise again with him. So if the deacons can come forward, we'll go ahead and take communion.